None of the voices in this series are ongoing patients of Esther Perel. Each episode of Where Should We Begin is a one-time counseling session. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality, names and some identifiable characteristics have been removed. But their voices and their stories are real. This episode of Where Should We Begin is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, Content Director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latinx minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping and get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. They're a young couple in terms of their experience together. And they're a young couple in terms of where they each are at in their lives. Their studies, defining themselves finding their path and dealing with the legacies of their family that is still so present for them individually and also as a couple. So they're defining themselves and they're defining their relationship. I think one of the unique facets of our relationship is us working through what it means to be queer and to be straight. Until we got together, I identified as gay. It's been really difficult for me and my identity to figure out what this means for me personally. They seek clarity with each other, but they don't always have the clarity with themselves. I've floated the idea of some sort of non-monogamy, and he's really, really not down for that. I come to a stopping point in conversations about polyamory because it feels uncomfortable to me. I want to feel more comfortable committing and being able to freely be myself. And I just feel confused about the whole thing. So much of what we're going to do is define the terms, but also step outside of the terms that have become too stale and too hermetic and open up conversations. As is often important to do in a relationship and especially a relationship in transition. They are at the verge of moving into 
a new phase, having moved in together, potentially moving and living close to his family. And so the compromises of the present will have implications for the future. And all of that is coming to a head right now in this session. So what are the pronouns? They, um, I use they, yeah, them and, they, them. And okay. I use he, him. he, him. Okay. Just tell me a little bit the story of your relationship. So we met when we were both working at the same preschool. I was working at the desk and doing after school stuff. And he was a teacher in the room right next to the desk. Um, I was extremely hungover every single day. I was in the bottom of my addiction. And like at the school, he was like the golden child teacher. Like everyone defers to him. You know, what do we do? Like we're having a hard situation in this. Oh, let's bring this kid to this one, to this guy. It's true. It's true, right? Sometimes they would. Sometimes. <laughs> That's a lot of credit, but thank you. Then. You you undersell yourself. Um, yeah, and then there was a an end-of-the-year staff party. But so do you. I don't have things that I can... <laughs> He's like this totally golden person. <laughs> um, and I've got this, like, rap sheet of... This is when I was hospitalized the first time. This is when my parents, blah, 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 blah. You know, and... Um, but you have a story between the two of you, right? I asked you about the relationship story. And basically, you started by with this theme of he's the golden child and <laughs> I am the troubled one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was... And for so long, this seemed to have been the primary features of my self-presentation. And the way that I defined myself and still define myself at that time is just through that lens of... Which was? Of... What was the definition? I ju- it was just the routine of how much I drank, how horrible I would feel, and then shaming myself for continuing that cycle, not knowing how to get out of it, so continuing it. I didn't have a lot of a social life. I started drugs when I was 13, and then when I was in high school, just like it got really intense. And then in college, I, ironically, I didn't have as much access to drugs in college as I did in high school. So I I relied a lot more on drinking. And then I just couldn't get out of it. And I would do these things with myself where I would say, if I can go this long without drinking, or if I can go this many nights drinking only this amount, then I've succeeded and like, I don't have a problem with it. And then if I could do that, which I rarely could, (laughs) um, I would congratulate myself by letting myself just go, just no limits at all. um, And then perpetuate the cycle. Alcoholism and addiction run in my family on both sides. who worried about you? Who watched over you? I mean, I did. Like, I had to... I was the one who decided I needed to go to rehab because he was either that or I was going to die. 
and I felt like I was dying every day and I felt resigned to that fact. My brother was drinking a lot, my stepmom was drinking a lot, and those were the people in my life. My dad died when I was, I had been in college for a week and I, and he died. Um, and he was the most stable parental figure. Uh, and then my mom has always been very like unpredictable. Is that, did you just search for a nice word? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I also, I think that she has traits of um, like a narcissistic personality disorder and along with substance abuse herself. So she would pass out every night on the couch and that was just part of us growing up. My parents were divorced and she would kind of lure us into spending time with her by giving us alcohol too. Yeah, so after my dad died, the, that was like the, the anchor person was gone. Um, so I had to like watch out for myself, but I didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was not very good at it until I made myself ask for help. The act itself of knowing I need help and I need other help than what is available around me here is a real sign of strength. I hope you've been told that. Yeah, uh, I've had to work hard on becoming proud of myself. When I say it, it's not so simple that if you were able to find treatment, if you were able to seek out help, that too is a strength. I hear that they didn't really absorb it. There is something about them after years of being in treatments and in detox centers and in rehabs that has strengthened their identity as a patient. And part of what I'm trying to do is help them see that they're not just a patient. They're also a person with lots of resources. It is a more hopeful and more generative view of themselves. And I wish I had been able to do a little more of that. And I had been able to really show my empathy and my compassion for the challenge, but also my challenge for the acceptance of the perennial role as the patient. And when I listened to my conversation with them, I felt that I had missed that. How many years are you together? Two and, Two and, and a half. And may I ask how old you are? I'm 29. And I'm 24. Alcoholism is just in your family or that's a thing you share? It's, a, it's definitely a shared thing. Mm -hmm. um, wow. I've had alcoholism on both sides of my family and um, my father is uh, an alcoholic. Um, he was a kind of a yelly person. Uh, yelly? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yelly? That's such a nice euphemism. <laughs> In my... Say it as it is. Um, there's a smoothie incident that stands out as kind of a good example 
where uh, one of the morning rituals for a while in my household was my dad would make us smoothies. And at one point, as children do, a fight ensued with my brother and I about who would get the first smoothie or something. And my dad's response was to take the smoothie and throw it, which we kind of laughed at at the time. And Laughter so, as a counter to fear? Yeah, no. And I think um, a lot of the way that we dealt with things was either the approach of like leaving the house and sneaking beneath the window so that he couldn't see that we were going somewhere. Just this fear response and like treading very carefully and giving a wide berth so that nothing blew the dynamite. And then mom packed up the kids and just... I mean, first, my mom was very upfront with my dad and had sat down and had a, had a conversation of, this is what I'm seeing. Like, I'm noticing this tendency to get aggressive, get, to get manic, to get really loud and unforgiving of your children. That conversation was met with a lot of, like, pushback and denial and, no, that's not me. And so we, after that, we began to feel more afraid and... So we left while he was on a work trip. So, yeah, my, my relationship with alcoholism is mostly adult children of alcoholics, and they have a bucket list of things that a child or an adult child of an alcoholic might be characterized by. And I was going down that list and like, oh, wow, this is me. <laughs> I feel the <laughs> need to... You? Yeah, I feel, I feel the need to be careful with my performance and uh, hold things together and be kind of the, the, both the curator of things and also like the, the manager in a way. And, because. and in, part, in part, I'm an oldest sibling. And for me, that meant like I need to model for my siblings how to deal with some of the hard things that we're seeing as children. And uh, in... I have to keep it together. Yeah. And yeah, but then he's the one who like has never smoked weed, like dare worked on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, meaning that I um, don't do drugs. I have never done drugs. I've never done, taken risks like that. Yeah. No, you see, he became one alternative. Yeah. To, the, to those similar circumstances. And you became another alternative. And you're two shadow sides Ooh. of the same mm -hmm. circumstances. Huh. You get mad. <laughs> He doesn't know where to put his anger. <laughs> This episode is Sound Designs with the help of the sounds of New York City. Subways, motorcycles, Shaking buildings, sirens. Welcome to my office. You lose the sense of boundaries. He constrains himself with boundaries. You are the choices he never made. That doesn't mean he's not intrigued by them. In ways, I think that's accurate. But from my vantage, that looks like a dichotomizing of like productive choices versus harmful choices or something like that. Or, or like that, like, I don't know. I, f I feel like I definitely made my 
made choices that were harmful in their own ways or like well, I don't, think I don't want that, to seem like your choices were, were no, bad. No, but I don't, <laughs> like, like, listening to that description, I didn't think of your description as good. Yeah. Like, I'm going to constrain myself. I'm going to, like, push these things together, hold it together, like, make sure all the rules are there. Yeah. And you internalize that as, like, that's the good one. Yeah, true. I don't Yeah, the dichotomy good. comes from you. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. Sorry to say. Yeah, that's she true. didn't say either or. That's true. <laughs> these are often the the extreme versions of the kinds of choices people make when they're faced with that kind of chaos. Mm -hmm. Chaos, neglect, need to step up, parent your own parents, be parentified children, all those things. But I don't have a, a higher and lower order here. I mean, it's true. I, I watch it as a contrast, not as an either or, mm -hmm. but as two common choices to this kind of situation. Each one comes with their consequences, period, you know. And it's hard when we have things together where we're making big decisions, which is happening a lot. They understood my use of the word choice, but what I was really aiming for was the notion of adaptation. They each had adapted to the circumstances of their childhood the neglect, the sense of being left to their own devices, the rampant alcoholism around them, and each had adapted differently. And that difference between the in control and out of control, between the one who became very responsible and the one who chucked their responsibilities, there was a complementarity. And in a way, what he was saying is it looks all right but I am hurting inside, no less than them. And I want you to know that even though it looks well put together, it has internal turmoil that may not be that different from theirs. So there is complementarity in the coping strategies and there is similarity in the deep wounding that each of these two people experienced growing up. Yeah. So what are the big decisions? We're thinking of moving near his family. And there's just, there's a, there's so many options and there's so many unknowns about how that's going to work. How are the logistics going to work? Even if we were to stay where we are, how would the logistics work? It feels insurmountable because then there's, we know we have to do this thing. And then... And, and like broader spectrum too for me, like we're emerging uh, or hopefully emerging from a pandemic and um, I felt so disconnected from other community. And I know like community is important to me and I know being around people like you is also important to you. And people like you. People like you. But. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... And then there's these, it, for me, I ruminate on the fact that we're making such big decisions on our own, or not on our own, together. Mm. We're making these big decisions together and what that means about our relationship as a whole. And we keep making these huge decisions as a couple. Does this mean we're going to have to get married? Like, that's my fear. <laughs> 
and I don't want to end this relationship. Where are we going? Geographically, mm-hmm. <laughs> relationally, mm-hmm. what else? Monetarily, mm-hmm. um, family-wise, children-wise, like job-wise, structure of family, structure of house, like geographically at the end. And relationship structure-wise, mm-hmm. too. And, and Meaning? I mean, one big thing that we haven't talked about or we have talked about that doesn't have a solution that we can find, so we don't talk about it very often, is my uncertainty and drive for newness and for connection to the queer parts of myself. Um, This is the first straight person I've ever been with. Um, And it's weird. And I didn't think it was gonna go anywhere. I thought I was going to go on a date with a nice guy because you're you're nice and I like you. <laughs> and you like sushi. And I liked you. But I was like, I don't know in what way I like you. And I didn't know in what way you liked me. And I was gay. <laughs> so. Present. I mean, yeah. Like, I, st- I don't know. Like, what? I don't know. Like, I still, it feels disingenuous to call myself gay when I'm with a cis guy, cis straight guy. And I feel really connected to that community still and all my friends are gay. And like, I do not want to end our relationship and I don't want to move away from our relationship. And I fear that I won't be able to connect with that side of my life anymore or again. So we've talked about are there ways in which we can structure our relationship differently? This is also the most monogamous relationship I've been in. Um, and so we've talked about non-monogamy. That's just been sort of a recurring conversation that comes up every few months. And we have a lot of emotions about it and then we put it down. Both carry a lot of trauma of the early years around neglect and unpredictability and the sense of aloneness that they each felt and the lack of structure in their life. One of the ways to look at the complementarity is that through them, he can loosen the grip a little bit. This grip that became his survival strategy, but that he has longed to be able to loosen a little. And through him, they can become more anchored, more grounded, without having to live in an unraveled situation of addiction and excess that constantly tries to rein itself in, but doesn't know how. And in that sense, they can give each other so much to help each of them transcend the legacies of their family. Support for Where Should We Begin comes from Shopify. Not all businesses are the same, and businesses need different things at different stages. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify can help you sell everywhere. 
From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operations no matter where you're selling. Right now, it's easier to stress less and sell more with Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to give you a little boost. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., along with millions of other businesses across 175 different countries. Try it for yourself and see why companies like Allbirds and Brooklinen have used the platform to power their growth. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ester. Go to shopify.com slash ester now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ester. Support for Where Should We Begin comes from Progressive. Most of us are listening to the podcast and multitasking. You may be driving, shopping, exercising, taking a walk. But if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else that you can do right now, which is to get a quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you can save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers can qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Get a quote for your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The emotions are... For me, a lot of it, it comes from a time when I'm feeling particularly trapped, I think. And it doesn't have to be trapped in the relationship, although it does mean that, but it means trapped in other ways in my life too. Like I'm feeling particularly isolated or depressed or haven't seen my friends in a long time, don't feel like I have community, don't feel understood or whatever it may be, but I'm feeling disconnected. You're talking about the queer part. Yeah. You're mixing two things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're mixing two things. It's one thing to say, when I feel disconnected, lonely, cut off from my friends, trapped, depressed, I think non-monogamy. That's one conversation. It can be monogamous and exclusive, and it can be non. Yeah. The queer part can be poly, and it can be mono. So these are two different things. And the one thing I notice is that when you start a conversation, you link it to everything. One conversation is about how do I integrate my queerness into this relationship? Does it have a place? Mm -hmm. What would it look like? The other conversation is I notice that I bring up monogamy, polyamory, non-exclusivity when I experience things that actually have nothing to do with the monogamy. But it becomes the... You know, this is the place where I suddenly can put all my trapped feelings. Mm -hmm. And that was a very insightful comment. It actually has not much to do with our relationship when I bring this in. That doesn't mean the conversation isn't in itself important as well. So part of what makes these conversations difficult between the two of you is that you don't stick to something. Well, you we start... don't want to try anything. That too could be. But I, I, what I just heard here is so much is put into one breath mm -hmm. that you don't know what you're talking about in the end. 
So we want to talk about monogamy. We want to talk about queer woman with cis straight guy. We want to talk about the fears of long-term relationships. We want to talk about what is the move that we want to make, you know, um, which piece. If, it, if, if we have all of them in one, we can't have any. The conversation, for me, the conversation about polyamory is one that brings up at least three things. One is a reminder of how important your identity is to you as a person who is queer and as um, a person like, uh, like always growing in your understanding of relationships. So that's one part. On my emotionality side, it's, it, it's extreme fear and reticence and also like a similar catastrophic feeling of like not only like engaging in polyamory or like initiating a polyamorous relationship, but also the conversation itself is rupturous. My mind always takes me to inadequacy and like we can talk about how those things are not connected. Like my adequateness as a partner does not have to do with your queerness. That's the feeling. But like that's where my heart goes. And like it's really hard. And I know this and Yeah, we've talked about it a lot. And like it's it's more it's not even a, a question of like how do how do we talk about polyamory? It's like how do we talk about talking about polyamory? And it's I've also never seen a long-lived relationship with a polyamorous couple. I've never seen a model. And my models for it are also media. Like, House of Cards is, is one model. Like, it's a terrible model, but that's... that's well, we know. I mean, I guess you don't know. I, but, like, there's, there's other examples, but, like, not... I haven't seen it work. It's, In your circle. In my in my circle, in your in, young circle, yeah. In his young straight circle, I know so many people who it works for. In my mm-hmm. young queer community, I feel like with the straightness comes a lot of other stuff where it's like, this is how things are. There's not as much questioning of how things are, and that's kind of how I lived my entire life. Mm-hmm. People in straight relationships have a much longer historical legacy of how things should be done. Yeah, and it's... Less creativity. Mm-hmm. More continuity, less creativity. And, and sexually, too, like... Well, also less <laughs> disclosure about how how things work in a relationship. Like, yeah, at least the, the way I've seen things play out forever. Like, there's plenty of monogamous relationships that really don't work, but, um, like... When I asked you what gets you worked up, you said something about the conversation itself that gets me intensely worked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's adequacy. It's, it's feeling like if I am not, the way society tells me to be is as a romantic partner, you have to be this, 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 this. You have to, as a romantic partner, you have to be so multifaceted. And if you, if you aren't like lover, counselor, family, pick your role, um, to your partner, it, you're not functioning right. And when I 
think about polyamory, it's as though if, if we don't function right, it's just going to dissemble. If like somebody else comes into this, like your interest in them is going to like pass your interest in me. And, and I try so hard to do everything the best I can. But if you think of others, then it will mean that the best wasn't so good. Yeah. And it's not true. Like, it, like I know that. Like, intellectually, I know that. But emotionally, I can't get past that. And it's like... And then not being able to talk about it with you, like, it's great and terrible. Like, I want to talk about it with you, but I don't know, like, feel how in inadequate it feels. I wish you would talk to me about it. And I know you don't want to feel that. I just want to find more peace around it, and I don't know what that looks like. I don't want to force you to do anything. I bring it up because I want to talk about our relationship and what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And it's not even really about our relationship. It's, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you. And then I feel stupid for bringing it up because I don't like making you upset. And because I love you and I don't want to lose you and I don't want you to think that you're not enough. So then I drop it for the next few months until these other things push it up. And we've done this cycle before. <laughs> like we've, we've said all this. Mm -hmm. Their associations to the word polyamory are vastly different. For him, it's a conversation on an emotional level about rejection, about inadequacy, about not being enough. And he knows that there is another conversation to be had about polyamory but he can't access it. For them, the conversation about polyamory is about community, it's about queerness as connected to creativity, exploration, curiosity, non-normativity. And that conversation becomes difficult because they realize that every time the subject comes up, they may hurt him and they may lose him. And so they are tight around the impossibility of talking about what they think is a conversation about polyamory. But the entrance may have to be, first of all, a conversation about community, 
about newness, about non-normativity, about what queerness has meant for them, and about what being the chosen one in the family has meant for him, which is now coming with him into this relationship. And this identity as the chosen one who was going to save the family when his mother took the children and left the alcoholic father has become a burden, but also an identity. We're trying to understand why is this conversation so painful? Because the poly challenges the concept of chosen. Even if the chosenness is something he wants to free himself from, he doesn't know how he would ever feel whole without it. The piece that I hear that you share is that you're saying, how can I be authentic to myself? How can I be authentic and even consider this conversation? What, is, what will it say about me if I change? But you're saying the same thing. I'm gay, and if I stay with this cis-straight guy, what does it say about me? Mm -hmm. It's like, in order to be together, it feels to each of us that there's a part of us that can't come with us. Yeah. And is this so? Or is this the way we've created the story? Mm. This is not a conversation about polyamory. It's a conversation about the way that you've structured your life, your, your whole psyche. This, I have got it, and I'm the center of it all. And everybody turns to me, and I solve all the problems. I'm the steward. I'm <laughs> the, you know... It is true with my mother, with my siblings, and it's true. And so the very thought of polyamory doesn't have anything to do with polyamory. It just instantly becomes, I am not the person that I thought I was. Yeah. So it becomes a very loaded, scary conversation, and it, you know, polyamory for you is the door to the queer, to the queer part of you. It's it, it. Yeah, it. It feels like our identities are clashing, and it. I. I'm the one right now who's sublimating all of that, and the idea of not doing that, of of, of saying goodbye to those parts of myself forever, is what comes up for me. And that's really scary. When we both get catastrophizing, we both catastrophize what, I don't know, the future of our relationship is in any regard. Yeah. The terminus is close. To me, it doesn't feel like we're at a breaking point. And I think we both said that of, you've kind of acknowledged yourself as the, more willing to change 
for the two of us, and I think that's true. But um, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's not. But I, I think that I'm more acclimated to just like fast shifts. When I think of them as part of a larger structure or a larger narrative, that's when it scares me. We've moved in together. We have a dog. Say These are huge again. things. What you just said is very important. When I think of the decisions that we make together as part of a larger narrative, that's when it scares me. Like I can make quick adaptations as long as I don't think they are forever. Mm. Yeah. When I listen to him describe their triggers as catastrophizing, I try to look for a metaphor, an alternative narrative that could be helpful to them to see from a different point of view what it means to have parts of your identity in a relationship and maybe other parts of your identity in other relationships, but without triggering the fears that come to the word monogamy or polyamory. And so I just wanted to try this out and see if it would bring some fresh air into a conversation that had become so charged and scary. Just to add other images other associations and try and emphasize. Can I suggest something? I don't know if the metaphor is going to work, but <laughs> I want to try one. Because I'm a foreigner. I spend a lot of time with foreigners, immigrants of all sorts. We all have parts of us that our closest people sometimes have never known. And they all know that we have other parts to us. But we live with certain parts of us in that relationship. And we live with other parts of us with other relationships. So that you could, could call that polyamory, right? Mm. We bring those other parts with others who speak our languages. And we go back. We travel home. And sometimes we travel alone so that we don't have to live in translation but you can be in the relationship with certain parts of you mm-hmm. and have and know that. That doesn't mean that it's a truncated self. Mm-hmm. It's a flexible self. It's a self that made choices about certain parts of itself and was willing to live with the loss, to live with the compromise, to live with the longing. And somebody else would say, one should never do that. Many people do make commitments with people outside of their culture, nationality, language, continent. Does that metaphor add something? Yeah, it does. I feel like that explains how I feel. I, it's always hard to verbalize it because it centers it around like, in our relationship, blah, blah. But it's really in other relationships... I can flesh that part of myself out. I can breathe that part. And do you maintain a connection to that community? All of my friends are <laughs> part of that community. Okay. And do the two of you spend time in that world too? We don't overlap friends. 
like at all. In general. Yeah. I mean, not as a rule. It just hasn't happened. Right. So that may be something that needs to change. And If I, you are to be with him and you want to maintain a connection to that world, he needs to visit that world with you. Visit is a nice word. He needs to spend time there, live there, speak that language, look at the norms, be at ease, you know, and be the foreigner on occasion, if foreigner is the right image for you, you know. It's just, yeah, I don't know. The people that, like, the people that I know who have examples of really successful, like, polyamorous relationships, I don't know are people that you'd be friends with on your own. I mean, we have... No, but on his own is not the, the criteria. The criteria is not that those are people you would have met yeah. by yourself. Those are people you each bring to each other. And if that component is missing, that's a piece that can be developed because that will become a step in between. That's a bridge. Part of why you can't imagine what that life would look like is because it's based on, on a very tiny sample, some of which is not even real people. Yeah. You have to visit. And... It's one thing to know and to say, I, I, I know there's a whole other person here, but, but, I don't, but you don't live with it. It's like when you go with your partner and the partner is actually speaking another language mm. with a bunch of their locals. And for once, you're the foreigner. And that's a dance that foreigners, mixed couples, US, non-US, to localize it here, experience daily. Yeah. So it's an active part. Even though that person isn't living in that country, that person brings parts of that country into the relationship. That country, that religion, that culture, that... Yeah, it's super helpful for me. And that is a part that you need to bring in in a more active so that it doesn't become, I'm with you and I lose it, or I go to that and I lose you. Mm -hmm. Anything that becomes this kind of either or, where both options feel un intolerable, will make you not have the conversation. Mm -hmm. Seems like that's a theme. Black and white thinking, yeah. I can't even think about the conversation itself because all I'm thinking is, you know, My inadequacy, it, it, there's no place to move in yeah. that. It, you, you will choke, you will cry, you will both look at each other, it will feel impossible, you will feel like you don't want a relationship to end, and then you will bury the conversation, and then you will be what I like to call in bliss but stuck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everything is fine, everything is fine, but we avoid this big issue, we avoid this big issue, and then when we talk about the big issue or when we even think about having to talk about the big issue, we both become so completely panicked at the thought of what this may mean to the dissolution of our relationship, which we don't want, so we don't talk about it. <laughs> then we get down, then we forget about it, and then we go back and we are in bliss, but stop. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Meanwhile, life takes us forward and now we have moved in and now we have a dog and now we're thinking about moving closer to his family and now I'm wondering, <gasps> does that mean I'm going to have to get married too? Mm-hmm. And then you start to feel like life is happening to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the purpose of today is to put these subjects on the table and to make them feel less tense, impossible, choking. Mm-hmm to the point where they have to be constantly suppressed. Yeah. If we manage to give you a little more of that flexibility or to open this up, this is the open of today, is to open up the conversation. Not what you're going to do with your whole life. We're not going to do that in one session. Yeah. But if you can open the conversation so that you don't every time feel when it comes up that it feels so choking and scary, then you will have left with something important. The goal is not to create an analogy between immigration and polyamory. It is not my role to decide with them about monogamy or polyamory at this moment in their relationship. My goal is to open up the conversation no matter which way they go, before they can talk about opening up the relationship, if that's what they ever choose to do, they both need to feel that they can open up the conversation. So, how does all of this fit with sex? Um, it was an adjustment for me. To have sober sex or to have sex Both. with a cisgender straight guy? Both. Both. And I think having it be sober sex made it a lot better and a lot easier for me to feel connected, physically connected, like in my body. That's not something that I was used to. Um, and it was just really hard it was hard to shift in that way. And there were things that I wanted to try or wanted to do that he wasn't comfortable with, isn't comfortable with. And that's okay. I don't want, I'm not going to make you try things. Um, But that's another aspect of like, I guess I'm a person who wants to like try everything once and, and, we get into this thing of how do you know that you don't like this thing or how do you know that you wouldn't like it if you tried it? He's like, I don't need to know. And that doesn't compute with me. I'm like, I need to know. I need to know if I like it or not. I need to know by trying it and doing it and getting all of these experiences so I can have like an index. Um, I like to try in order to know. Yeah. I need to know before I try. Yeah, but that trying and not trying is not necessarily queer straight related. Yeah. It can be, but it, it it exists among two people. Period. Yeah, I don't think that it's inherently queer, and I do think that for me, it's part of my queerness is that sort of 
experimenting with relationships and experimenting with sex and like different ways of living and different like different ways of being with another person or or other people um so queerness became a part of you and a space where playfulness exploration was much more prevalent mm-hmm. than in the straight part of the world. Yeah, and that's coming from an outside view because I didn't have a straight relationship. Like, I, I never... That's what you imagined the straight right. world to be. It does it the same way all the time. Right. <laughs> because that's how they, in this case, he has done it all the time. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing. You you drive uncertainty. And yet you find yourself this person. Mm-hmm. And this person's one thing that they will bring to your life is your ability to tolerate more uncertainty and not as a negative experience. Yeah. And exploration and curiosity and playfulness and mystery are all active engagements with the unknown. And the unknown in your life has been a source of great stress and anxiety and sadness. But there's a part of you somewhere that would like to explore this with positive anticipation. And that's where they come in. And if you say no in advance, because why should I? Because I already know, because I don't want to, when you don't know. But that's the system that's been put in place to make sure that you could carry all this responsibility that was put on you from such an early age over all the people in your family. You couldn't explore much. It's the positive anticipation thing that really struck a chord with me right. because it's like, there's definitely anticipation, but it's hard for me to <laughs> that's frame correct. it as, yeah, That's correct. It's that usually seen as, you know, and this is where they come in. This is one of the gifts they will give in your life, sexually speaking as well. You can start with the sex because it's a playful arena to be in the sandbox together. (laughs) And we don't always know why we pick someone, but there's always a reason. And it's not always an obvious one, you know. They focus on their self-destructive side, but they could also focus on their more exploratory side. Talking about the self-destructive side is beginning to be old. It's also a part of you you know well and have talked to every shrink about. So I know how to talk about it. Yes, but but one feels that you've done that many times. One knows this is a a rehearsed story. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's not an important one. But it's a it's a it's a familiar one, I versus say it without feeling it. Right. Yeah. Versus the exploratory one, the one that is more nimble, the one that can make these quick adaptations. It's the very thing that you couldn't conceive of it for the life of you. What they will do with you are things that you cannot even imagine doing with them. Sometimes there's only one person who can do it. They have that nimbleness. They have that adaptability. 
including the queer person living in a straight world or in a straight relationship. But you don't have to be a straight relationship. You can become your own relationship that's multilingual. Esther Perel is the author of Mating in Captivity and the State of Affairs, and also the host of the podcast, How's Work? To apply with your partner for a session for the podcast, or for show notes on each episode, go to whereshouldwebegin.estherperel.com. Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel is produced by Magnificent Noise for Gimlet and Esther Perel Productions. Our production staff includes Eric Newsom, Eva Walchover, Destry Sibley, Huete Gatana, and Julia Natt. Recorded by Noriko Akabe, Kristen Muller is our engineer. Original music and additional production by Paul Schneider. And the executive producers of Where Should We Begin are Esther Perel and Jesse Baker. We would also like to thank Lydia Polgreen, Colin Campbell, Clara Sankey, Ian Kerner, Alma, Courtney Hamilton, Nick Oxenhorn, and Jack Saul. Support for Where Should We Begin comes from Masterclass. Masterclass offers classes from over 180 world-class instructors. Frank Gehry can teach you about his unconventional approach to design and architecture. Margaret Atwood can help you develop your eye for story. Or you can take my own course. My class is about relational intelligence, how you connect with others, how you improve your communication skills, develop more empathy, build better boundaries, and find clearer resolution for conflict. Right now, you will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash begin. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash begin. Masterclass.com slash begin. This episode of Where Should We Begin is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.